Hey everybody, Mark D, IT guy here, dad, and generally bad movie nerd. Awful movie nerd, terrible movie nerd, but a lot of enthusiasm, team. A lot of enthusiasm. And why, you may ask? Uh, because today I'm going to be talking about Batman Mask of the Phantasm. And while I perhaps share a somewhat uh, infantile, maybe some would call it infantile, love for superheroes and more specifically the character of Batman, I think that Batman displays a lot more depth in a lot of the media that is created. And this one specifically really hit me hard as a kid. I was maybe eight years old when I saw this movie. Um, it changed me. It, it made me different. And we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk all about it in a second. I'm just so excited. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do right now. What, what do I do in the intro scene for a movie that I'm just turbo happy to be talking about? Turbo happy to have watched again. How do I prepare you without overhyping you? I don't think it's the best movie, but I think it's a really great movie. But it also goes kind of hand in hand and part and parcel with Batman the Animated Series, which changed a lot for me as well in terms of animation. And still does to this day. It still affects me to this day. I went ahead and I bought the collection. I own this movie three times. I own the original VHS. I may have the comic book that came with the VHS somewhere. I have a DVD and now I have a Blu-ray copy. So let's get into it. I am Vengeance. I am the Knight. I am... Batman! So that was a little different, but, um, yeah, by the numbers. Batman Mask of the Phantasm was costly compared to make to, I guess, the show. It uh, had a total budget of $6 million. But interestingly enough, in its small U.S. theater release, it didn't have a huge release. It wasn't out for long. I think it, it came out on Christmas. If I'm, I, I really, I really do uh, need to prepare more. And by prepare, I mean, it's not that I don't know. It's that I'm just dumb and I forgot. Yes, it was released Christmas Day, 1993. I think it stayed in the theaters for a couple weeks, not too long. And it made $5.6 million just on the theater release alone on budget, according to IMDb. However, Batman Mask of the Phantasm had a massive home video market. It sold like gangbusters. It came uh, in a VHS with a comic book. There was also a novelization that came out it was really cool i really dug it uh a lot of people did right so that's kind of where the success the legacy of this movie comes from it is not from being in theaters for whatever it's not being number one at the box office it's more that it had this uh very impressive debut with this really solid solid tale that to this day continues forth i primarily purchased the Blu-ray of Batman the Animated Series to get the Blu-ray edition of 
Batman Master of the Phantasm. So that's in it for me. But I think one of the things that we can talk about right up top is the music. Music was handled by Shirley Walker, who's had a pretty storied career. She definitely after, uh, did Batman the Animated Series and obviously Master of the Phantasm, but she went on to do other uh, DC animated shows, which are generally known to be good in their music. Uh, but she's also done A League of Their Own, True Lies, Dick Tracy, Dark Man, like some a very long and storied career and some of these are, are particular in how period and how kind of um pulp maybe is the word i'm looking for kind of like pop sensibility they are so thinking of nope, also ninja turtles apparently uh uncredited but thinking of dark man which is you know essentially the first spider-man movie or the first Sam Raimi comic book movie, thinking of Dick Tracy with this very period 20s kind of feel. Uh, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm's music comes in serious. As you can tell, there's this, this choir that is very kind of bold and big. And, and the selection that I, I used for that uh, music was actually taken from the climax of the movie, more or less. So... It's a little different than the opening theme. I love the opening theme as well. You know, it just doesn't quite hit that that part just quite as hard. But uh, the score is actually mixed pretty loud in this movie as well, and I think it, it works. It gives you like this big theater experience, this movie-watching experience where this orchestra, this beautiful, huge orchestra, and, and this chorus singing in either Latin or, as I've read, they're reading the names of the cast and crew backwards, which is maybe a fun Easter egg. It, it gives it so much punch. It's, it's huge, and it doesn't feel like it's a comic book score. It doesn't even feel like... It, it kind of alternates. There are, are parts that are kind of like detective-y, 40s, uh, noir, like very stereotypical. But the majority of it almost feels like, especially in the action scenes, like a '40s adventure movie. Almost like, almost like a a dark Indiana Jones score, perhaps. Like, what if Indiana Jones was this was this real like dark character with this 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 deep uh, pathos that is motivating him? You know, versus he wants to put stuff in a museum and. He got whipped in the face one time, and a guy gave him his hat, right? Kind of the difference. And I love Indiana Jones. I'm not trying to throw shade. It's just a very different look. Indiana Jones is a fun pulp score. It's adventure. It's, you know, ba ba da ba It's very, like, motivated gallopy and stuff like that. This is different. This is not that. This is almost the opposite. Um, but there's those big, triumphant set pieces and the very, like... Um, fugue style kind of like fight music and, and things like that and there's also um a very interesting song choice for the end credits which was performed by a uh, tia carrera of i guess wayne's world fame that's really where i know her from and i'll drop a, a clip in it right here because it's hard to explain until you hear it Just watch it. Oh. 
So this is like some Kenny G shit, right? This is peak 90s, almost um, easy listening, which is odd. Uh, Tia Carrera singing voice, actually very nice. I just, I guess the market uh, didn't really embrace her. You know, being a pop star is almost about, or, or, or recording artist star, a music recording artist is difficult. And it's not always based on your music. There are a lot of tremendous musicians around that just never quote unquote make it. So no judgment, just it's a, a really weird selection for an animated movie, which is ostensibly, and I say ostensibly, and we'll get into that, uh, geared towards children to have a, a cast member of Wayne's World sing a Kenny G ass song after a dude in a cape and cowl punched a clown's tooth out, or maybe Andrea punches tooth out. I forgot, but so on and so forth. Yeah. Segue. Woo. No segue. Um, getting out of music. Nope. That was it. That was, that was all for the music. That was everything for music. So I think we can talk about voice actors and, and voice acting and the actors and Andrea Romano, Andrea Romano being the casting director for Batman, the animated series, which real, I I mean, she's apparently been in the industry for a long time and doing great work. I think she did tiny tunes and Animaniacs as well. Like a lot of uh, Warner brothers properties, which I love to death as well. So maybe this is the, the common thread here is a lot of these people worked on all these properties and maybe their personal touches uh, showed through. So Andrea Romano, I mean, Kevin Conroy is my Batman. That is my Batman voice. That is the essentially impression that I tried to do up top. And he's, he's my guy. He's my dude, you know, and he's really set on, on Bruce Wayne being the mask. Bruce Wayne is, is the persona that he puts on. He became Batman when his parents died. He just didn't fully know it yet. So he, he does it, uh, you know, really cool. Bruce has like a kind of like, oh, Lyle, I'm a phony voice. You know, higher pitched, less bottom end. And, and he does a really interesting, there's an interesting choice when he's talking to Andrea and, you know, Bruce Wayne is talking to Andrea. And she's like, well, how's that plan going for you? Uh, or is that plan working out for you? You know, cause it's like, oh, you know, it's not part of the plan. Bloop, 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 bloop. She's like, well, how's that working out for you? Or is, has that been working out for you? And he goes so far, right? So far like Batman. And I was like, okay. And he does like a little like eh, sly thing where he's like, I'm Batman. That's I think right before he does this kind of like year one, year two, I guess, maybe to be more specific kind of action scene so far. I love Kevin Conroy's voice as Batman and the voice acting paired with the source material, uh, the script and, and, and whatnot. The performance really has sold me on Batman as this character and is, is a commonality with almost every character in the movie and in the animated series. So I think I just might as well say a lot of this holds for Batman, the animated series as well. And as a movie, podcast but this movie is very much the product of the same exact people that kind of worked on the animated series so that's another thing it's not some cheesy tie-in that's uh, you know 
oh, it's fine. We'll just rework it. No one will notice. Like they took time and effort and care to make a an authentic product, an authentic piece of art, if you will. Uh, Dana Delaney was picked for Andrea Beaumont, and she is great. Dana Delaney is a fantastic voice actor, and she ended up going on to be Lois Lane in The Adventures of Superman, kind of long-term. And that's a really cool gig to have to be Lois Lane, I guess. You know, it's a, it's a popular character. It's a known character, so that's awesome. Uh, Mark Hamill is also my Joker, and he will always be my Joker. Heath Ledger's performance, not, you know, not discounting it. It's just different. Uh, but again, like being caught at this early age and experiencing these things for the first time. I, I remember I saw his name in the credits one time. I must've been nine or 10 because I was already deep into Star Wars. And I'm, I've been very deep into Star Wars in my life and I've kind of purposefully avoided that in this podcast because I think other people do it really, really well as well. Um, maybe they don't hit the personal notes all the time that I would have. And I might revisit that in the future in, in a bundle, but there's a lot of Star Wars media out there to consume that is very, very good. But Mark Hamill is a fantastic voice actor in my book and is a genuine fan of the work. And in the coffee table book, Batman Animated, which everyone who's a fan should have, because it goes into everything that I'm talking about in more detail uh, and better and, and more interesting. He he's says that he, he read for like a, a kind of cheesy like guest role or whatever, and he came back and he's like, yeah, but you know what? Like, I want to do one of his main villains. And he's just the most perfect Joker uh, that I could imagine because of his emotional range as a voice actor, right? He really captures the mania and also the malice of Joker. And he can kind of switch, you know, flip a switch and go from one to the other and back again. And that's um, something that the Joker movie, which I saw and, and I liked very much, and I don't, I don't think of the Joker as a sympathetic character ever, so I don't get the whole like white, uh, you know, society kicking the white guy or whatever. It's not that's not how I saw the movie. I, I saw the movie as a a combination of a lot of factors, but I don't ever think of the Joker as a sympathetic character here, nor in the Joker movie, nor in the Dark Knight, nor anything like that. Like he's always just a a, a bad person to me with a lot of issues. So when Mark Hamill does it he can go from like almost uh, cloyingly sweet to like hardcore intimidating and menacing just in a heartbeat. And it is stellar. It is wonderful. So again, just a, a bevy of talented people. Stacey Keach was doing the voice of phantasm. Um, the voice of Alfred is Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., I believe. And I'm going to look that up because, yeah, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., that is a sick-ass name. Abe Vigoda as Sal Valestra. You know, like, it's a, it's a pretty beefy cast. Hart Bachner as Arthur Reeves. So, 
again, good voices, good talent. Apparently Mark Hamill's also very talented at ADR, so he can just kind of re-record things in a heartbeat. He's just very quick, very quick guy. So good on, good on Mark Hamill. Segue into what? Where am I going from here? Mm-mm. I never even... I guess into character, right? And going from voice to the characters, we're kind of seeing how they were pieced together. Obviously, you know, Batman, I talked about how Bruce Wayne is the mask and how that comes through in the performance, and that's kind of how the show is written as well. He's hardly ever Bruce Wayne. He's almost always Batman and so on and so forth. Sometimes he has to go, like, in disguise or undercover, um, which I think the Nolan movies did... Uh, decently well, or two of three, if memory serves. And these visual designs were mostly done by, by Bruce Tim, and they're just gorgeous, right? Uh, Joker, I've been in love with the Batman the Animated Series Joker since always. I do not like the new adventures of Batman Joker. I, don't, I, I like uh, yellow eyes uh, Joker, not like white eyes with people Joker kind of thing. I like the the first iteration of Joker, which is the the Joker that is in this movie, and and the first iteration of Batman and and Robin. I know that they they really updated the characters to be a little more streamlined, and they updated the animation a little bit because the animation wasn't exactly Cowboy Bebop. It wasn't that fluidity and stuff like that. It was you know kind of older school, but the the blockiness of these characters and things like that. And there's a really um man, there's a really chunky. Uh, animation thing where Batman like jumps out of a building and he's supposed to like fall and it just looks like they just got the Batman cell and just rotated him and he goes oh and I was just like mm, that's not a good fall animation but I get it so I love the Joker uh, Bruce Wayne here they kind of um, Bruce Wayne Batman's character in this movie this is kind of a similar to Cowboy Bebop movie it's kind of in the middle, right? There's no... You flash back to the beginning, but there's no strict part of the continuity where it ends up in the animated series at the very least. And it's almost like it's an Arrested Development thing where he kind of stopped growing up as as Bruce Wayne when Andrea left, right? He never got to have that really formative or... I mean, he did, I guess, but he never like got closure on that big, formative relationship. She she said, "I'm going away for a little bit, and maybe I'll be back." I don't know. And she just never came back until much, much later. But that's something that's interesting as as an adolescent, as a or not adolescent really, because he was like 1920, you know. But in that age where we, uh, as a Western society, at least in the U.S., tend to kind of go through these things for him to have been denied that closure and, and also never been able to truly move on. They really kind of set the tone for that in the, in the beginning of the movie when he gets the drink thrown in his face at his own party. And I thought that was interesting and how powerful she is when she comes back, like that X, you know, that big X, one of those seven evil X's, or in this case, well, one evil X, uh, an evil, mm, strong word, but I thought it was cool. I thought it was an interesting take on the character of Bruce Wayne Batman. 
he's kind of been done a lot, so kind of a new facet. I know that in the Kevin Smith Batman books, he uh, he had uh, a relationship, so I haven't really caught up on those. I never finished that run, but interesting, interesting take. Andrea Beaumont, though, um, the daughter of a wealthy finance man who's in bed with the mob, as one does, and again, spoilers all over the place. She's kind of Batman's dark mirror, where it's like, what if Batman grew up a little differently, right? Because uh, her mom died, and she's actually super torn up about it. She would actually, they met uh, talking to their deceased parents, essentially, in the same graveyard, which is uh, a synergy, a syzygy, even, a lining up of these planets that I think was particularly striking in a non-Martha way. <laughs> Martha! <laughs> Fucking Martha. Andrea's his dark mirror, and she is a strong female, and she's not afraid to voice or pursue her desires. You know, she kind of actively goes after the relationship uh, with Bruce that he um, was obviously interested, but didn't kind of know how to handle that interaction. So she kind of pushes it a little bit. Um, and she's not looking for a savior in any regards. She's not waiting for anybody to save her. She doesn't need to manipulate someone into saving her. As a matter of fact, she makes her own vow essentially off screen, I guess, but she dons her own cape and fucking mask. She looks like the goddamn ghost of Christmas future, right? Which is, I love the, the character design of Phantasm and of the two Funko Pops that I have. One is unmasked Darth Vader and the other is Phantasm. That's how much I love Phantasm. She's mistaken for Batman throughout the movie when she's dressed as Phantasm and that, you know, that can mean a lot, but I think it's mostly taken to be that that's his dark mirror, that he's always been, like Alfred says it, he's like, you're you're always on the edge of that pit, but you've never fallen in. You know, she fell in years ago or whatever he says. And the character design is so cool because, you know, she's got that one hand that's a fucking axe and she can literally vape. Like, I think the design of, of Reaper and Overwatch was heavily influenced by Phantasm. And I, I did, like, the first time I saw it, I played him, and I'm like, you can vape? Th that's like a Phantasm gag, and he has the whole mask and hood and bullshit hanging off of him. You know, but the the, the smoke, the voice, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to do the voice here, the voice effect here, insert voice effect. Yeah, no, I, I cut that out. It It didn't work out. And, um... The death iconography really like Batman was always looking for that graphic symbol and, and in this movie he puts on the cowl for the first time and, and Alfred's like, Oh my god and it's you know, his kind of transformative nature, he's not Bruce Wayne anymore, he's he's something else. And Phantasm does it too, but with death iconography and, and Phantasm goes out there and just straight fucking murders people. Just straight murders people. And that's pretty cool. Uh, not the murdering part, but the the character part, right? The the difference and the similarities of fat uh, phantasm. I was gonna say fat men and phantasm, but uh, the phantasm and Batman. So that's all kind of 
going into this this story that a few people put together Paul Dini uh you know he uh personally said uh, I believe the quote was he filled in the gaps here and there but he was definitely one of the main story editors for Batman the animated series and and wrote uh some of the more prestigious um episodes but uh Alan Burnett was brought on board and Alan Burnett was a long time kind of writer for children's entertainment uh things like the Smurfs, Tailspin, DuckTales, Gummy Bears and GoBots and they they kind of uh, made this thing and I just want to you know uh, Paul Dini during the the production of this movie was kind of brutally assaulted um on his way home one night and it was a, it was a really uh, big issue in his life and that kind of may have factored into that and, and and it's been a long-term thing and he talked about it on uh kevin smith's podcast and he he wrote a graphic novel uh, you know kind of going through that catharsis and it was called like uh you know dark knight of batman tale i believe uh something like that i should look this up because paul dini is kind of my guy and he's just the sweetest And he was also the, the author for Batman Animated and definitely also was the author for Mad Love and the creator of Harley Quinn and, and many other very famous Batman characters now. But uh, list of books goes here. Wow. Okay. Paul, your character, uh, your character, Paul, your fucking, your webpage needs work, homie. Anyway, can't find it right now. But Paul Dini... Definitely kind of a, a heart of the, the the series, kind of the guiding voice. Um, Bruce Tim similarly with the design. And um, that was also... Bruce, Bruce Tim. I don't know that I'm ready to talk about Bruce Tim just yet. I'm not. I'm not ready. But I will. I will. Um... But the way that this this kind of the, the plot of this movie works out, that the timing of these events, the apparently this borrows heavily from the Batman comic year two. And like the piece of shit that I am, I haven't read it. I've just it's life has been busy and I'm trying to record this podcast like whenever I get a chance. So now I have a chance now I'm recording this. And um I don't I'm not familiar with year two. I've read year one and year zero, but not year two. So fuck me, I guess. But it's just interesting how his relationship with Andrea kind of drives him to be Batman. The timing of his vigilante career and how he discovers the cave when he goes to propose to her. And how her leaving um, kind of reinforces this thing with the cave that he discovered and the bats and the, the whole thing. You know, that's a, a very kind of beautiful interplay. And... You know, he he tries to save her also the way that he tries to save her to prevent her from killing the Joker, but also to prevent the Joker from killing her. And it's a weird thing where it's almost like a a three a three way fight where everybody kind of has a slightly different motivation and they're all kind of fighting each other. And well, Joker, not so much. He's just kind of capitalizing on the opportunities that he gets. But it's it's a very interesting um, climax to this movie. and. Again, slightly unusual and 
very well storyboarded and, and thought out, right? You know, there's also how Andrea's, you know, essentially the Batman Dark Mirror, and she has her own secret identity that she hides from him. And it's like the the irony, the little ironic kind of like throwaway lines that Bruce Wayne normally gets, she gets in this movie, where where she's like, you know, Arthur's like, well, I'll see you later. And she's just like, well, you never know what the future will bring. And it's like, because I'm going to go fucking kill you, is the subtext there. And, and when, you know, she tells him, oh, daddy doesn't matter anymore, right? When Bruce is like, can it work out? You know, your father, blah, blah, blah. Daddy doesn't matter anymore because he's fucking dead, right? And she knows this. And until you get to the reveal, you don't know that these, these are just heavy irony. I mean, you, you, an adult with experience might be able to tell it's not hidden, but it's not, you know, overt either for a child watching this movie as I was and, and as I have been many times that I've seen it. I was like, oh, that's good, you know, as an adult now. I was like, oh, that's good. And then, you know, obviously the Alfred kind of like speech where he's he's talking about the difference between Andrea and Bruce and, you know, he's talking about the, the metaphorical pit. And he's like, you've walked along the edge of the pit. And they are literally at the edge of a pit in the Batcave. The Batcave notoriously being this enormous cavern with a, a bottomless chasm and, and like kind of like outcroppings and random uh, walkways and catwalks and, and things like that around. So, you know, just really good artistic writing and character and plot. And everything kind of coming to a head. You don't really know that it's a Joker, but you, you can kind of figure it out maybe. But if if you didn't, when you do, it's like, wow. And how all these things get intertwined. Why Sal Valestra went to the Joker and, and all this. So, you know, we, we learn a little bit about the Joker. We learn a bit about Bruce. We learn about Andrea. And we kind of see this really fun interplay of, of things. And I think now, maybe, maybe, and I, th I think I'm going to have to actually stop this recording now and, and go do some adult things because we're, we're 30 minutes in. But when I get back, and obviously you won't know, time will have passed for me, but not for you. I will, I will probably be prepared to talk about Bruce Tim, and, of course, Eric Radomski. See you then. So it's been a week. I don't think I have coronavirus. I'm a little phlegmy, but so far so good. But things are are definitely popping off. And this is just to put a little bit of um, temporal kind of flavor on this. Because I don't know. I don't know when you'll be listening to this. I don't even know if I'll ever finish editing it. I don't know. The... I don't know what the future holds, and that is uncertain, but I feel strong enough about 
Mask of the Phantasm to try to finish this podcast. So to talk about Bruce Tim and Eric Radomski, we can kind of go into the history, and I know I know more about Bruce Tim than I do about Eric. Eric uh, kind of took a, a sideline. He um, chose to work on other things, but Bruce Tim is essentially the creator of what's called the Tim Verse, aka the DC Animated Universe. And this includes Batman the Animated Series, The New Adventures of Batman, or whatever, any Batman show, Superman the Animated Series, Batman Beyond, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, so on and so forth, ad nauseum. And Bruce Tim created the seed of all of these shows in Batman the Animated Series, but he did so independently almost uh bruce was working for warner brothers on tiny tune as was eric radomsky and paul dini and he was kind of designing batman in his own spare time he was a big character designer and he would do his own thing and he was creating these kind of like blocky batman designs and eventually somebody took notice and they move forward, and I believe Batman animated the book really gets into that in detail. So I, again, recommend buying it if you are a Batman the Animated Series fan. It is 100% worth whatever you might pay for it within a reasonable scope of, you know, book retailer, retailer or reseller, if you will. So Bruce and Eric kind of hooked up. And they started working on, on this thing. And Eric had this idea, uh, along with, with Bruce's, uh, or, or yeah, Bruce, Bruce's kind of blocky characters. He's like, what if we now draw this, these backgrounds on black paper? And Eric Radomski was the, the father of Gotham as we know it, the father of the, the the Timverse, the urban Timverse, as we know it. And again, in Batman Animated, you see a lot of the concept art, and it is it is striking how beautiful and, and, and bold and dark and not gritty. Um, I wouldn't say gritty because the art itself is a different style, but I would just say like original there right so that's kind of where that came from uh eventually eric parted ways and, and and chose to pursue other things but this was after most of of batman the animated series as far as i know uh bruce tim also created gotham knight which is the animatrix for the dark knight and it is definitely a departure from batman the animated series and that it is an anthology that it incorporates a lot of different animation in there, uh, which is really cool. If you liked the Animatrix and you like Batman movies, definitely watch Gotham Knight. It'll it'll give you a little more context for Dark Knight Rises, uh, which was fine. I saw it once. I barely remember it. Bruce Tim was also the voice of the Mad Bomber in the episode beware the gray ghosts and did the art for paul dini's mad love comic which is appropriate because harley quinn had her her debut in the animated series also probably 
designed by Bruce Tim and Paul Dini. But I I wanna go back and 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 touch on the episode Beware the Grey Ghosts for a second. And in the beginning I kind of said that it's hard to separate the animated series from the movie Mask of the Phantasm because they are very much of the same cloth. They are of the same vision. They are unified. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my favorite animated series episode, Beware the Grey Ghost. And by a little bit, I mean a slight amount. And in Beware the Grey Ghost, there is a in-fiction kind of superhero TV star named the Grey Ghost, who is uh, now an out-of-work older actor, hard on his luck, and he has to sell all of his Grey Ghost memorabilia. But in that, um, somebody starts using the memorabilia to blow up buildings or banks or whatever the case was, and that is the Mad Bomber. And Bruce Tim voices the Mad Bomber, and the Mad Bomber is the, spoiler, is the owner of the toy store where, or, or you know, kind of comic store, comic shop kind of nerd store where the actor whose the character's name escapes me is selling all his stuff, right? So Bruce Tim is almost like, in the meta, like consuming all of this memorabilia, all of this influence, and then using it and making it his own, and then going and striking out on his own with it, right? As almost a tool, it's almost a hammer. And Batman foils him, but Batman uh, foils him by A, determining, you know, that, oh, this is Grey Ghost memorabilia, and then going to see the actor. Um, and now there's two very important things in here that also will reflect upon Bruce Timm's character in a very literal way at this point in time. And I don't even remember who wrote this episode right now. And I'll, I'll I should look it up. I should pause it. I'm going to, I'm going to pause this for a second and see if I can find that. Okay. And I've got it here, right? So the writing credits are a story by Dennis O'Flattery and Tom Ruger and teleplay or, or screenplay by Garen Wolf and Tom Ruger. Uh, with story editor Alan Burnett, Alan Burnett being one of the, or the, I guess, uh, first author or head author, top author of Mask of the Phantasm. So how this kind of sorts in, it feels good, right? And the, the way that I imagine the story editor kind of hat going is that you have screen, you know, screenplays that are assigned out. Like in this episode, somebody fights that guy. And when it comes in, you have to shape it to fit the, the gap in the show, right? So it's about making everything feel a little more unified. And the Grey Ghost, the actor's name is Simon Trent. And the two things that I wanted to talk about were how Bruce Wayne as a boy would watch the gray ghosts uh with his father with thomas which kevin conroy also voices uh thomas wayne in this episode and if i sound like i'm getting a little emotional i am uh so bruce wayne would watch the gray ghost and the gray ghost was this uh kind of like a 30s noir hero that inspired a lot of his Batman persona in a, 
in a few different ways, and they illustrate that in the episode. But um, I think the, the, the cherry on that is that the Grey Ghost, a.k.a. Simon Trent, who suits up again to help Batman beat the Mad Bomber in the show, is voiced by Adam West, which was uh, so influential to all the people who who worked on Batman the Animated Series by virtue of, of their age and when he was Batman. And that kind of real-life-to-art uh, parallels, synergy, parallelism, uh, congruence, maybe? I love it. I think it's great. So... Yeah, that's that's my favorite animated series episode. Uh, I have a, a bunch of others that I like, but that's actually my favorite one. So Bruce Tim uh, is not unaware of his kind of his creation, his involvement, and and the things around him, and I, I think that's a, a beautiful thing for an artist to have. But what we really need to talk about is. Dark Deco. <laughs> this is gonna, um, this is going to be maybe a little more in depth than most people would want for a movie podcast. But if you've taken defense against art, <laughs> but if you've taken defense against art history, you'll say, "Hey, my wife's over there," and you will just run away from this podcast. But Dark Deco is is. It's dark. It is, uh, again, backgrounds drawn on black paper. There are very strong shadows, very single point of light. Harsh shadows, not evenly lit, right? So there's essentially one light in the scene, and you can have a character almost completely in shadow, and they'll use uh, white eyes. In a lot of those cases, Batman has all white eyes, when he's in the cowl, kind of to contrast uh, the Joker, who has these like jaundiced eyes with like visible iris and and, and stuff like that. Um, and Batman the animated series, as it uh, as the adventures of of Batman and Robin, kind of kind of flips that a little bit. But they're not afraid to use uh, noir to further animation as a graphic medium. And to essentially just do it all the way, where where things just fall to black, just crunchy, and to be so dark that they're almost beyond the the limit of how dark a show could be and be fit for broadcast television, right? So when I talk about dark deco, it is it is dark, um, but it is art deco, and art deco is. A really interesting form of uh, architecture and design, uh, mostly architecture and design. I guess art in general, sure. There's uh, art deco art pieces, but they follow usually the form and design of the architecture and the essentially pieces that have been designed that way. And it was called the uh, Style Modern or Style Modern. And it uh, kind of debuted in Paris in 1925 in the um, Exposition Internationale del 
the arts decoratives et industrials modern. And that's terrible pronunciation, but it's a it was a it was a thing in Paris. It was the International uh, Decorative Arts and Industrial and, and Modern Industry Exposition. It's described as being uh, simple, clean shapes with uh, geometric and stylized form and kind of uh, expensive and luxurious things like uh, a lot of things like plastics were a new thing at the time, uh, you know, concrete in addition to ivory obsidian uh, crystal. And a lot of these were just um, celebrating the machine aesthetic, right? Not, not these things weren't necessarily mass produced, but they looked uh, perfect. They looked smooth. They looked like they were made by a machine, and it is an an insanely kind of uh, symmetric and and clean and in a way cold in in a certain way it's not handmade it's not hewn from living timber as a slab table might be and it's just it's just um smooth and and precise and unvaried and they made they made furniture they made architecture uh all types of of jewelry and fashion and Industrial design, if you if you want examples in movies, uh, The Rocketeer, Sky Captain in the Worlds of Tomorrow, Tomorrowland in a certain way, uh, Ghostbusters, the, the building that Dana lives in is a, an art deco building. There uh, are a couple places where art deco lives on, you know, if you have been to Disneyland, the inferior Disneyland in California, the entrance to California Adventure is Art Deco. Uh, if you've seen the Tower of Terror, it is an Art Deco building, usually. Uh, it does not exist in Disneyland anymore. It's now Guardians of the Galaxy, but in Disney World, the superior one, the Tower of Terror still stands. Uh, the Universal Studios entrance, at least the one in Universal Studios Florida, is also a good example of Art Deco, and also the Hoover Dam. Hoover Dam is a, a wonderful, beautiful piece of of rock that has changed the ecology of the area in, in many ways. Uh, but you know, the most important question you can ask about yourself, yourself about that is where you can get some damn bait. There's still Art Deco buildings in a lot of cities. Detroit has the Fisher building, the guardian building, Chicago has the board of trade building and the merchandise mart. Among others, Chicago's a pretty big one. Uh, New York, obviously, there's really good examples in the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, and Rockefeller Center. Those are very known, very popular examples of Art Deco design. And the Rockefeller Center, the kind of Atlas dude holding the, the globe and stuff like that, like those massive beefy guys holding stuff up, that's a a motif that is definitely in Batman as well in different places. Even the, um, maybe Batman forever. I don't know that the Tim Burton Batman's had that so much, but I think Batman forever had beefy rock dudes holding a bunch of stuff up. 
Miami Beach, very near and, and close to my heart, has the Miami Beach Architectural District or the Art Deco District. And as you're driving into the beach on the 395, you there's a sign for it. And this is, you know, also one of the last vestiges. All of that was almost torn down, you know, but there are amazing examples of, of Art Deco that still stand there, like Essex House, the Lincoln Theater, and the Carlisle. So Art Deco is this massively influential style of design that just happened in a short period of time in the 30s, primarily. And it came forward in games, uh, you know, obviously film and, and industrial design and, and things like that, but in games too, like Grim Fandango uh, by LucasArts is Art Deco top to bottom. You know, their Starship Titanic, the Douglas Adams game, Bioshock was basically all Art Deco. Uh, the Outer Worlds is heavy Art Deco, uh, even though New Vegas had some of it. Like I said, the Hoover Dam was in New Vegas, and some of the hotels on the Strip in New Vegas were very Art Deco. Uh, the Outer Worlds um, Obsidian seems to have like fully embraced that style of design, and I, I really appreciate it. I find it beautiful in a lot of ways, but even games that wouldn't traditionally have Art Deco are introducing it like uh city skylines has an art deco dlc right so this is a thing that is is old but it's it's not forgotten and i've been seeing it since i was a kid and i always wondered um in a very kid-like fashion like those are those those buildings are different but you know why and it wasn't until much later that i learned that that was that was something of, of time gone by and there were relics and there were remnants, but they were so compelling to me in a lot of ways. And to see this in a cartoon that I was watching was, was amazing and breathtaking. And, um, it, um, you know, it goes a little further, right? Especially in this movie. Because in this movie, they do essentially an homage to uh, the 1939 World's Fair, where that, um, I didn't really know about the World's Fair until I went to the museum, uh, the Wilsonian Museum on Miami Beach, which had a whole thing on, on machine aesthetic and, and Art Deco and, and uh, essentially, I think, war propaganda, interestingly enough. Uh, but things of those times, and they had a model of the Trilon and Perisphere. And when I saw it, and this is me as an adult, this is me at mm, 20, 26, maybe 25, maybe older, 27, possibly. And it stopped me cold because I saw it and I was like, that's that's the centerpiece from the fight in Batman mask of the phantasm. And it, it stopped me cold. And I, I knew that I was kind of in my, in my place in my zone, um, because of the impact that this had on me many years. I hadn't seen the movie in a while. I had moved out and left the VHS essentially at my parents' house. And, after seeing this model and understanding where it came from, because I, I never knew and I never thought to look, I thought it was just like cool design that some artists made it. Um, 
it caused me to get the DVD and, and to watch it again and, and to revisit it. And I guess to reaffirm my, my love for this, this movie and the, the Trilon and Perisphere, if, if you don't know, the, the Trilon is like a kind of like a three-sided pyramid, but it was like very narrow. It was, it was 610 feet tall and it was, it was made of concrete. And the perisphere was a big globe. It was a 200-foot kind of uh, diameter globe, which is massive. And it had the longest, the world's longest escalator called the helicline, which was uh, 900 feet long and 18 feet wide, kind of going up to and into it. And inside of the perisphere was the, uh, I think they called it Democacity or democracy, maybe, uh, which was a utopian miniature city inside, and the, the helicline would kind of take you through it. And that's the, the end fight. The end fight is is in there, and it's the, the miniature of Gotham, and it had lights and all these things, and it is accurate, very, very accurate uh, in its homage. And it definitely inspired things like the Epcot Ball, it just, you know, the, 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 the globe now in Flushing Queens, uh, with the fountain that, that stands now where the, the perisphere stood, uh, it's called the Unisphere, universal ass looking ball, right? I always call it the universal ball, but it's not, but it's called the Unisphere. So I guess that's where universal just cribbed the design, um, but unfortunately, the Trilon and Perisphere held on the fairgrounds in Flushing, Queens, uh, they were demolished in 1940, and likely those materials, um, an insane amount of steel and things like that were used for the war effort. And that, that saddens me because we still have kind of like the UFOs, which, you know, men in black used to great effect. Um, but to walk up to a 610-foot, uh, Trilon standing next to a 200-foot perisphere. Um, that must have been... It would still, to this day, to me, be a sight uh, that would stir up emotion. But in 1939, to imagine this construction, these were essentially wonders of the world at the time. And it's just, it's amazing to me. It was, it was genuinely amazing. And, and Bruce Tim and, and Eric Radomsky who have, uh, probably more, probably equally emotional, but more academic love and understanding for the style of art and, and architecture to, to pay homage to it in such a big way, especially on the big screen and a theatrical release. That was very cool to me. That was amazing to me. So this is just, it's just part of it. I mean, it also affirms that, that, uh, Gotham is a stand in for New York city. Right. And, um, the fairgrounds being in Flushing Queens, part of New York city. Uh, in I think the dark Knight they talked about Wayne Manor on the Palisades or Batman begins. And the Palisades are these huge cliffs on the New Jersey side of the Hudson river. Again, New York city. 
So we'll put that fucking to rest, not this Batman versus Superman. Like, oh, Gotham is across the bay from Metropolis. Fuck you, dude. Metropolis is Chicago. Gotham is New York. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Now, Chicago definitely looks more like Gotham in real life, but it was just standards. Uh, but Chicago was great, uh, a film location for the movies. But, you know, coming back to it, in the, the beginning of the movie, there's a huge 3D animated Gotham intro, which in 1992 was wild to think about. And there are wonderful lighting effects on these you know, geometric, um, geometric kind of three dimensional, like it's really dark. And a lot of the buildings have the red lights on them so that airplanes don't crash into them. And as they blink, you get the hint of depth and of, of three dimensionality in the buildings, but they are so, uh, stark and graphic as to not reveal their full shape. It's a really cool, uh, animation animatic i'm not sure what the the right word for it is but they took they took everything from the animated series and they turned it up to 11 in that regard um and for a theatrical release it's actually a little more graphic than the show there is uh noticeable blood in in many places and uh, one of joker's teeth actually gets knocked out and you see it flying out of his mouth and it stays out for the rest of the movie, as far as I know. They, uh, the you know, script continuity keeps up with that one. So it's definitely a little more graphic, and I think that was uh, for the the point of making it a movie, for, for keeping it off of TV, for just making it a little more, and maybe a little more for the adults. In the 90s, I don't think many adults even then would have seen the trial on the Parisphere, but they might have known about it they might have known a little more about the world's fair i kind of learned about it backwards uh i assumed it was a world's fair but i i didn't really fully know what that meant um and i mean the world's fair is like a big thing like uh in disney in the magic kingdom in disney world again the superior uh area they have a building called the crystal palace which is also kind of like a reproduction a small reproduction of uh, a World's Fair building, which was like the biggest glass building in 1898 or whatever the fuck in England. And that one like burned down or something. Um, so the World's Fair was definitely a, a big deal in this. Um, but again, coming back to the, the art and the design, they also made this look a little more movie-like. And by movie-like, they are setting the movie in the late 30s, early 40s. And by setting it, um, I mean, not only are they doing it kind of with the music and the adventure pulpiness, uh, fightness of it, but they are also doing things like the soft focus inserts, right? So um, there's an insert on Andrea's ring when Bruce, I think, gives it to her, puts it on her finger, where in the 40s, they used to do an insane thing. And I say insane now because we have uh, so much... Uh, technology and utility we have so many things we can put soft filters we can we can do a lot and we also as um as a movie watching public our taste has uh expanded if not just simply changed but just become broader but they would rub vaseline on a lens and kind of have like a a vignette of vaseline a vignette of impossibly soft focus and things like that 
and they they do that to the insert of her ring is is kind of one of the noticeable like here it is moments i don't think they do it more than maybe once more but it was so like it knocked me out now knowing what that is right watching this as an adult and and as an avid movie fan and having seen many movies knowing that that is them aping what what a 1941 movie would look like <laughs> like humphrey bogart was going to show up at any moment and uh it was just it was so interesting that they chose to do that in an animated movie and i think again you know maybe one for the adults or the grandparents right i don't know where to go from there but uh i just yeah i i love this movie to death i don't think it's necessarily perfect i think it's good i think that the the reveal of the joker is wonderful if you're a child if you're an adult now you'd be like hmm i know who that is you know uh, i also never read gear two so i don't have any strong criticisms based on that but my my personal experience it was it's a very personal movie to me and in, in a lot of ways but i recommend watching it if you're interested in any of this, I think it's really good. I think it's cool. I think it is wonderful for a, a cartoon TV show to have a full-ass movie and to see a full-ass movie that they made under the gun with like maybe less than a year of production. Uh, it was really kind of balls to the wall for a lot of it. And if you think that Phantasm is kind of this one trick, um, that's not quite accurate. Phantasm comes back in a couple of comics uh, or a couple of movies, maybe. Uh, shit. And did I talk about this already? Yeah, I think I talked about Batman Adventure Shadows of Mask and Batman and Robin uh, Shadow of the Phantasm. But I do want to say that around the time of this recording, or just before, uh, Tom King had written and released another Batman thing on Phantasm. I guess the return of Phantasm. I haven't read it yet, and that that's on me. I'm just busy. I haven't even finished reading the whatever the fuck Doomsday Clock fucking sequel that Watchmen was, even though I paid for it. I'm just like, what the fuck are these people doing? But, you know, Phantasm came back, and I was really excited, and I'm, I'm posting everywhere. Oh, fucking Phantasm's back in comics, and um, but I will go back and I will read that, that Phantasm comic at some point in time. I'm hoping it's on like DC digital or like, uh, comiXology, right? Because, uh, physical space, I, I don't have any anymore or I do, but I don't want to make the compromises necessary to free it up. So, you know, that being said, I'm, I'm hyped for Phantasm's return again. Phantasm is... One of my favorite characters, I, I have the the pop figure. They're pops, right? You gotta have my pops. Yeah, Funko Pop. I have the Funko Pop figure. And I think that the pathos that they gave uh, Andrea and the parallels, the congruence with the Dark Knight himself and the illustration that, oh, maybe he's not that dark, even though he's a ostensibly a psychotic madman that brutalizes people without respect for law, right? Uh, 
you know, it's just, it's interesting. It's fun to examine. It's fun to disassemble and Rubik's cube, all these things. Uh, this is more indicative of how I think of things as an adult. Uh, when I was a kid, I was definitely like, oh, Batman looks cool and his car is fucking dope. And the Batplane, I love the Batplane. I had die cast for the Batmobile from Batman the Animated Series and the Batplane. And I swore to God I'm about to buy another one or another set even like right now on eBay. Because I, I love those things so much, I would give them to my kid, but he will break something with them. Because they were fucking, like, I don't know, surgical steel. They were just destroy things. Uh, I actually thought I did buy another Batmobile at some point, uh, but I may have lost it in the move. I don't know. But again, um, I guess this is uh, end of the show. This is rambling end of the show. I don't know. I don't know what else to do here. I've I've talked about this movie for an hour, roughly, and I think you should watch it if you're interested in watching an animated movie. It's not streaming anywhere, I don't think. Uh, why would it be, right? But you might be able to rent it or buy it. That'd be cool. Or you can just listen to it. This episode, I mean, it tells you a lot of the things, but it tells you from my lens, the lens of me, right? And I'm less interested in the lens of me because I already, already have this impression, this information. I'm more interested in the lens of you. So if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, hit me up on Twitter. I am at CoolMarkD, cool with a C and Mark with a K. Uh, the D is just the letter D. And uh, please let me know. Let me know. I'd love to have a discussion. I'm just curious about movies, about what people think about movies and all these things. I also have a Letterboxd account, and you give me one second, I will pull that up. And this is new for me, and it's kind of um, it's kind of weird, but on Letterboxd, I am Mark D 20 d20 like a 20-sided die and mark with a k obviously and i'm kind of getting used to letterbox but if you can reach out to me there that's cool too um i've added some number of movies that i've seen and i rated them like or dislike i don't i don't know that i want to give them a numerical rating per se because of the multi-dimensionality that i think about movies sometimes i like bad movies because they're bad I think you know bad boys too or um Sometimes I like good movies because they make fun of bad movies, think Hot Fuzz or, you know, so on and so forth. And I think putting everybody on the same kind of plane of rating is not quite honest in a way, or not honest, but not descriptive, not um, conclusive, not thorough. It is not thorough, and I haven't come to write written reviews yet i don't want to say that i'm passing judgment on something especially if i don't like it i don't want to necessarily call out people because they didn't do a perfect job that day or, or whatever the case was uh, i really want to celebrate the movies that i like and i like so so many so right now i'm just doing kind of a binary yes or no uh like dislike on those and i haven't written anything but i don't know if how groups work or anything like that. I'm, I'm still getting into 
letterbox little by little so check me out there mark d20 and uh until then keep watching movies uh do your thing spool it up uh insert disc uh dcss i don't i don't know i don't i don't have a catchphrase right now i'm tired it's late it's been like two weeks that i've been recording this in total just in in time not that i've spent that much time it's just been that span of time work is crazy right now there's coronavirus everywhere there might be coronavirus next door tomorrow i don't fucking know no i'm not gonna lie it's a scary time i'm at risk my family's at risk uh high risk i should say so if i get it i'm most likely just fucking dead so i hope to publish this uh podcast without coronavirus and hopefully to live more of a life and on that downer on that bombshell back to the studio fucking top gear i love those guys uh Additionally, I just want to point out that Paul Dini's book is called Dark Knight, A True Batman Story, and it is a number one New York Times bestseller, and it is uh, described as, this is a Batman story like no other, the harrowing and eloquent autobiographical tale of writer Paul Dini's courageous struggle to overcome a desperate situation, available on Amazon now, hardcover, paperback, or Kindle and Comixology. However, Batman Mask of the Phantasm had a massive home theater, or, yeah, home theater, home, home market, home theater, home, what, what is that called, home, home release, market, uh, the fuck, what do you call that? Home video, idiot. <laughs> okay, so these are going to be names, I guess, like uh, Joker, Joker, Joker. I don't want to monitor my actual input here. Uh, Joker, Joker, Joker. No monitoring. There we go. Joker. Alfred. 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 Robin. Robin. Selena. Joker. Character's name, stop by you, look it up on IMDB. Andrea, Andrea, Andrea.
and he's really set on Bruce Wayne being the mask. Somebody stop me! I hear the web calling. You forgot that character's name. And baby, I seem a bit confused because, baby, I just watched this thing. But I don't know what to do when I forgot Dana Delaney's name. I'm looking it up again. I went too low on that one. Good night, everybody. <laughs>